Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with Elizabeth Hamilton Garino and Chris Fuller, helping you and people across the globe live life to the fullest. Our focus is on you so you can be your best and create the life you deserve. Visit us at besteveryou.com. an echo in this end, but hopefully it'll go away. So um, we don't have Dr. Harvey Rothbart with us, <laughs> as you said. We have, we're going to make sure we get your name right. We have Dr. Harley Rothbart with us. <laughs> Did I get it right? Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. And we get to hold up his book. So this is a huge honor. Thank you for being with us here on the Best Ever You Show. Um, Dr. Rothbart is the author of No Regrets Living, and it's published by my favorite publisher, HCI. And uh, this is a great book. I am. So here's how far I am into it. Right there. Nice. Just Thank you. I just got my copy. And um, boy. OK, so I need to I need to share a little story with you, if you don't mind. Sure. And then I'll turn the show over and we can we can just chat. So I believe in miracles and medical miracles so much. And I, I thank you for all of your work. My dad is a miracle. He, he passed away in 2018, but he was a stroke survivor from 2004 to 2018 of October. And they called him the ICU warrior. He survived things that, that he baffled doctors, how he survived what he survived. So Beautiful. I love. Beautiful. I love, love, love your writing, and I love your book. So thank you for being here. I appreciate I appreciate the chance. And miracles are miracles are my favorite topic. <laughs> so hearing your dad's story just reinforces for me the 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 beauty of that topic, and I appreciate your sharing it. Well, so I'm a I'm a mom of four boys, and they're mostly scientists. They're uh, environmental science, studying to be their own doctors all those good things. They're two years apart, ages 20 to 26, all yeah. call it at once. Yeah. And what I noticed about your book, and the reason why I said that it's not about me, it's about you, um, because it's it feels like in your book, you go back and forth between science and miracle and try and you're trying to like explain both and let them coexist. And it's the first time I've really seen somebody do that. Well, you know, um, I go back to something Albert Einstein once said, and that is there are only two ways to live your life. One of them is as if nothing's a miracle, and the other is as if everything is a miracle. And I'm in that latter category, even though I am, as your sons probably are, I am an evidence-based scientist. For me, um, what counts is what I can prove and what I can move forward from those results. That is, what is it that I've learned? And can I prove that what I have what I think I've learned is true? And so I am evidence-based. So how can an evidence-based scientist for 35 years believe in miracles or believe in God for that matter? And the answer for me is that the world around me is miraculous by my personal definition. And that personal definition is, things that I cannot create myself or explain the existence of. And that's almost everything. And in, in this era of, of pandemic, this is going to sound heretical, but I believe that everything from the 70 billion trillion stars in the universe, that's seven times 10 to the 22 that we know about, seven times 10 to the 22 stars, an unfathomable number. 
everything from that number of stars down to a virus is a miracle. I believe viruses are miracles. Terrible thing to say during a pandemic, but I can't make a virus. I don't understand what a virus is. And even if someday I can make a virus, I'd have to ask the question, where do the raw materials come from to make that virus? And yet, when a virus infects a cell, it can make one million copies of itself within a matter of a few hours, exploding the cell and spreading to all the nearby cells, which is why we feel so miserable when we have the flu or COVID. Viruses are miraculous. I can't make one. I don't understand them. I've studied them for 35 years. I'm a virologist. I think they're miracles. Interesting. I, you know, I, I notice when people pick up your book um, in the in the part. Um, sorry, I'm echoing again. Try not to echo. In parts like these, you talk about the virus. So you, you it's it's about your seven. Um, I think it's seven keys to your life of. I want to make sure I get it right. Seven keys to a life of wonder and contentment. But also, you you talk about COVID throughout the whole book. Did you mean to do that when you started writing that? Well, I started writing it at the very beginning of the, actually before the pandemic, and then the pandemic shortly thereafter hit. And it became clear to me that much of what I'm writing can potentially apply to the pandemic and to people trying to move through the pandemic without the regrets that the book is is centered on trying to prevent. And so I spoke with the publisher and they were kind enough, HCI was kind enough to allow me to insert, as you note, um, these gray boxes uh, into the text so that it, the gray boxes are relevant for right now. Hopefully the rest of the text is relevant forever, but the gray boxes are relevant for helping all of us, I, I hope, to get through the pandemic. Well, somehow I think all of it will be relevant forever because I know I'm, Reading what you've written here in the gray boxes, just for me, it kind of settled me down a little bit and explained things. So I really appreciated that within this book as well. Um, I, I wanted to let our audience know that that's in there. If you're looking for a, a great book that talks about no regrets living, but then also has some really, really thoughtful, and you can fill in the word there if you want to add a stronger word there, but really thoughtful explanations of how COVID is affecting us and how we can think about COVID. It's, it's sort of explained in terms that are, that are really easy to read and digest um, because so much of what you read on COVID, you don't know whether it's truth or fiction or this or that. And I just really appreciated your insight. Just wanted to let you know that because it calmed me down a little bit. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's, uh, we all need some calming down and it, uh, it helped me to ground myself uh, to think about the concepts of no regrets parenting, the seven keys that you mentioned in the context of a world altering event yeah. like pandemic. For example, there is a, uh, there's, a there's a picture of a, of a yellow butterfly on the cover of the book. And, the, uh, um, and I talk about the butterfly effect uh, in the book. And the butterfly effect, uh, there's a scientific name for it which I'll tell you so you understand why people call it the butterfly effect. The scientific name is the law, one second, the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions. 
the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions. But it's become known as the butterfly effect. And the concept there is for scientists like myself, like your sons, to try and, and make something um, logical out of what appears to be random or chaotic. That is to take a single event and somehow put it into the context of, of the larger events going around. Now, the butterfly effect comes from the metaphor that a butterfly flapping its wings in one part of the world could potentially, with millions of inflection points along the way, cause a tsunami in another part of the world. That is one step at a time, but it all begins with the flap of a butterfly's wings. Well, if there's any greater example of the butterfly, butterfly effect than the pandemic, I can't think of one. It began in one part of the world, perhaps in a, in a single laboratory or open market. It began in one part of the world and it shut down the entire world with millions of inflection points along the way. That can be translated to a personal level. And I, and I try to do that, mm -hmm. that every one of our actions even if we don't know the downstream effects, has downstream effects. And everything that we do in our lives can potentially impact others and impact, if we're thinking more grandly, the world. And that we have an obligation in each of our actions to be those butterflies, to flap our wings in a way that improve the world. And and what if we flap them in a, exactly that in a way that did improve the world instead of having negative impact? And I know one of the things that I love that you talk about, and I, I think I, I came to it right at the right point was you talk about what if we did that and we started younger so that children had that foundation of the kindness and gratitude and love, you know, and all the things. That's why we started Best Ever You Kids, by the way, too. We just launched it. I'm like, yes. Oh, it, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. Yeah, we're going to we're going to talk to you about maybe becoming an expert and putting some articles up there and things like that. We'd love to have you on there. But what if right. you did really um, get a hold of all of this at a younger age? How much different do you think the world might be? Well, let me tell you the story of the children of Whitwell, Tennessee. So mm -hmm. Whitwell, Tennessee is a small community of about 2000 people. And uh, they had a program in their elementary school to teach these children about the Holocaust, about, about World War II. Right. And one of the things that they taught the kids was that the Norwegians had a um, ritual during the Holocaust, during World War II, of putting a paper clip on their lapel in commemoration of and in solidarity with those victims of Hitler and the Nazis. And that this was their silent protest, a paperclip on their lapel. So the students of Whitwell, Tennessee, population 2000, heard about this. There wasn't a single Jewish student or Jewish family in the town of Whitwell, Tennessee at that time. And as far as I know, still today. But what the students did was they said, How, what does 6 million mean, the 6 million Jews that were killed? What does 11 million mean, the 11 million innocents that were killed by Adolf Hitler? What does that mean? And so they started a project to collect 11 million paperclips. And they solicited paperclips from all over the country and all over the world. President Clinton sent in a paperclip. President Bush sent in a paperclip. Movie stars, celebrities, athletes all sent in a single paperclip. 
to this collection, hoping to build up first to 6 million and then to 11 million. So the kids could get a grasp for what 6 million and 11 million means. 30 million paper clips later, 30 million paper clips later, they established a museum with those paper clips, which have artifacts from the Holocaust. This is Whitwell, Tennessee. Artifacts from the Holocaust that were sent in from all over the world, including from Germany, an actual train car that had been used to transport the victims to the concentration camps. Hmm. Now, those children then spread their awareness of the Holocaust to their parents and from their parents to the rest of the state of Tennessee and from Tennessee to the country. And it's a documentary film and it's a book on the paperclip experiment and it's an educational program which is now taught to fifth graders across the country. And that's how we spread with our flap of a butterfly wing beginning at the youngest of ages. That's how we spread goodness in the world and that's how we combat evil in the world by teaching the kids from the get-go about what it means to improve the world. Wow. So if somebody's listening, if somebody's listening, they're a parent or a child, we have, we have all sorts of groups that listen to this show. If it's not a paperclip paper uh, endeavor that they start, what else could they do maybe even just smaller? Well, first of all, um, I'm a pediatrician. I, I, I do infectious diseases, but I'm a pediatrician. So I, I, I have blinders on as far as many of, the, many of the biggest problems in the world. And as far as I'm concerned, um, all the problems of evil in the world, all the ways to improve the world begin at the kitchen table. And Whitwell, Tennessee was an example of where progress began in the schools. And that's a, a, an incredibly important supplement to the kitchen table. But it's very hard to think of a tyrant, of a dictator, of a mass murderer. We just had a horrible shooting in Boulder, Colorado a few weeks ago, which followed a horrible shooting in Atlanta before that, and which then was followed by horrible shootings in North Carolina and elsewhere. That kind of evil does not arise typically from a household where the kitchen table teaches good, where, where there's a loving family, there's, there's loving parents, there's a supportive family, and children grow up with love instead of with bitterness, instead of with narratives of evil and hate. And that's where it begins. For every parent to teach their child that the good in the world is important to preserve, the bad in the world is important to shun, and it's your job, my son or daughter, it's your job to help spread that word. When it can't happen in the, in the household, it can happen like it did in Whitwell, Tennessee, because the parents in Whitwell, Tennessee didn't know about the Holocaust until their kids brought it home. They brought it home like influenza comes home from schools with kids. They brought home teaching to their parents. So it's bi-directional. I just wanna sit with that for a minute. That's so powerful. Um, you, you know, I was, I'm going to go right here to this book and you're going to have to correct me, soften this up somehow, but you have, you have quite a story. The whole beginning of the book made me cry. Um, I, 
And I personally have been places like to the Holocaust Museum. And I went there uh, eight and a half, I think about eight months pregnant and had to leave because it made me just sick. And um, and for some reason, when I was a little girl, I studied everything World War Two. I have no idea why my my youngest son is the same way as well. And um, so I don't know. I don't know why I don't have any explanation why. But those are just things. But then when I read this, I'm like, oh, wow. Um, do you want to talk about that? Because it would be really easy for you to be mad. Easy for me to be mad. Oh, mad. Angry. Oh. Um, not right. talking about goodness in people, not, you know, you could be on a whole yeah. different playing field here. Well, let me start out by saying that um, I believe in miracles. I personally believe in God. I would no longer, I would never ask anyone else to believe what I believe, but that's my personal belief system. And I ask myself every day, how can I explain the Holocaust. I never knew my grandparents on my dad's side. My father was an Auschwitz survivor, Auschwitz concentration camp, and he lost his entire family uh, in the camp. So I never knew anyone on my dad's side except one aunt who managed to survive, and and we are very grateful for for her. Um, but other than that, my dad's family was all lost, along with everyone in his small town from Poland and and many many people from throughout Europe. So how how do I explain that? Do I explain that with anger? Of course, I, I, of course, I'm angry that that happened. I mean, I'm angry that ten people were killed senselessly in Boulder three weeks ago. I, I mean, anger is anger is part of 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 the response that I think we all have to have to that kind of tragedy. But I also reflect back as an infectious diseases doctor on all of the incurable, seemingly incurable diseases that have been cured. And I consider evil to be one of those diseases. I see evil as a societal disease, a societal pandemic at times, and, and I believe it can be cured. And my evidence for that isn't strong, <laughs> but um, I'll start with the Game of Thrones. And my wife was addicted to the Game of Thrones, and my kids were addicted to the Game of Thrones, my adult kids. I can't, I can't be in the room when the Game of Thrones is on. I, I find it horrific. I can't imagine the level of evil carnage um, and terror that existed in the medieval world. And yet historians tell us that the Game of Thrones is not far off from a description of what medieval times were like. So let's compare on the one hand, medieval evil, and compare evil today. Now, of course, the Holocaust was, was evil even beyond medieval times. But if we look at the trajectory of humankind, if we look at where we've come since medieval times, the trajectory is positive. It's upward. We are moving in a better direction. We are more civil today than we ever have been. And as President Biden said yesterday, that doesn't explain the genocide that still exists in modern era. There is still genocide. And tragically, there was genocide after the Holocaust. I mean, what happened before the Holocaust, we should have learned from, and the Holocaust never should have happened. But there have been genocides and horrific evils following the Holocaust. From that, we have to learn. We have to move beyond that. But we have been able to cure other incurables. We now 
look at natural disasters, for example. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes used to be community-wide devastation and death, but we're better now. We now build stronger buildings. There was a 7.7 magnitude earthquake in Alaska a couple of years ago, and no one was hurt. No buildings fell. Why? Because the buildings were built stronger. We've cured, at least in the parts of the world, unfortunately not in Haiti and other parts of the world, but we have cured much of the world from the devastations of many natural disasters. The Three uh, Rivers Dam in China, <coughs> pardon me, was built because millions of people were killed by flooding of the Yangtze River over the course of the past 200 years. Millions of people, not thousands, millions of people were killed by flooding of the Yangtze River. Now with the Three Gorges Dam, I think I called it wrong, it's the Three Gorges Dam. Now with the Three Gorges Dam in China, it's expected that there will be many fewer, if any, deaths due to flooding of the Yangtze River. It was built at a cost. There were human lives lost in the building. P populations were displaced to build it. But humankind in general is on the upswing in curing the incurable. And that's where I see evil. I think we can cure evil. All right. So in comes your book with your seven keys to a life of wonder and contentment. Um, with 10 minutes in mind and seven things to go through, how how would you like to, we can go longer, of course, because it's fun It's it's fun and enlightening to, to chat with you here. Would you like to pick a couple or just tell us your favorite part or you tell me how you want to talk about, about your well, book? Um, we've talked about discovering miracles. Um, we've talked a little bit about belief um, and and my personal belief system, which I explain in the book and and invite other people, invite the readers to to, to explore their own belief system. Um, I see the miracles around us as evidence for something higher, and that's what gives me a belief system. Um, people can call it whatever they want. I call it God, but people can call it whatever they want, that something higher. Right. Um, and and then I, I think that the appreciation uh, key uh, allows us to focus on the good instead of focusing on our regrets. And the idea of no regrets living, which is really the, the theme of everything that we're talking about, is how to overcome the past. Regrets are retro. Regrets are retroactive, they're retrospective, they're retro. We have to learn to consider the retro regrets in the context in which they occurred and to realize that what we did that we wish we hadn't or what happened that we wish hadn't all occurred in a context where we made the decisions we made, we took the actions that we took, but they were contextual. And we have to forgive ourselves when we made mistakes, when we wish we would have done something different, the woulda, coulda, shouldas of our lives. Self-forgiveness is a key to what we have to seek in our lives. And once we're able to do that and learn from those regrets, then we move forward and we appreciate, going back to our miracles, we appreciate the miracles that are all around us. And that leads us away from regretting what we don't have, regretting what we didn't do. Look what we did do in the grow key at the end of the book. I talk about asking readers to identify as I did in the book, the mile markers of their lives. Where are the major growth points 
that have led them to where they are today? And where do they want to grow beyond this? And it's remarkable how many individual events in our lives we can identify that represent our personal growth, that represent our um, evolution as a person. And, and I'm gonna now sum up everything together and say <laughs> that by moving past the regrets of retro, the regrets in the past, and looking forward in a way to minimize the future regrets by appreciating all that is good around us, we become, wait for it, the best ever you. We become, <laughs> we, be, we become our best ever, we become our best ever person by, by appreciating what we have, forgiving ourselves for what we did that we regret and, and moving on with our lives. Love it. I have a question for you. You could have done, you, you sound anyway, like you could do and, and behave like you could do anything you want to do in life. I mean, anything. You sound almost like a history. Was history a major of yours along with being a doctor? I mean, there are so many components of you that are amazing. I'm going to take that. What were you like in kindergarten? What was I like? In kindergarten. Yeah, I just kind of <laughs> kindergarten you for, for a moment or two. Well, I, I guess. I'll give you an example. So Miss Bradley was my kindergarten teacher. Miss Bradley called my mother into school because I was of, of my behavior. And I was the least bad behaving kid ever. I mean, I was like a complete dweeb. <laughs> but so when my mother got the call, that that little Harley little Harley is acting out and behaving badly. She was shocked, and she came into school. And Miss Bradley said, "I don't understand what's gotten into Harley. He is laughing uncontrollably. I cannot stop him. He's hysterical. He's laughing uncontrollable, uncontrollably." And my mom said, "What happened?" And she said, I don't know. We were talking about America and about being patriotic. And all I said was, it's the duty of all Americans. And he started laughing uncontrollably. And my mother said, that's because the word duty in our house means something else. <laughs> <That's perfect. laughs> I wondered if that was coming when he said it. I'm like, I think I know where we're going. <laughs> So, oh, so cute. As soon as he heard the word the duty, I can't stop him from laughing. Oh, that's so funny. The so duty of all kid. Americans. Yeah, the duty of all Americans. So <laughs> sweet, a sweet kid. Um, and so um, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Did you know, like from inner because I, I think I always knew I wanted to help people be their best. As a little kid in kindergarten, I would help teach the other kids to read and write. I, I, used to, I used to protect the girls on the playground when the boys were chasing them. I mean, my job was to, now, of course, the girls wanted to be chased, so I don't think they appreciated my protecting them, but that, <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of kid I was. Now, I, I really wanted to, I always wanted to be a writer. Oh. And, um, I, I really, my goal, thanks, my goal was um, to try and make a living being a writer. And all through high school and college, I did the yearbook and the newspaper and creative essays and and things like that. And then I thought maybe I should try and make a living <laughs> instead. 
still haven't learned that lesson. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a little too late for me to go back to med school, but yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I had that same dream, but it's a, it's a great dream because I, you know, I want to, I want to make sure people, I'm sure people know this, but I'll just read, humor me here as I read other books by you. So miracles we have seen 940 Saturdays, no regrets parenting. I would love to have you on again and talk about that one too. Cause that's a great, that's a great book. Germ proof your kids, the on deck circle of life and human Enter is it enterovirus infections? That would sound yeah, less that one, exciting to me. Yeah, <laughs> that one's that, that one's less less for general audiences. Do <laughs> um, you? Um, so let me ask you this: um, Do you have plans to keep writing? Will Will, will you write more? I hope you do. It's I a really so. good book. Well, there's a second edition of No Regrets Parenting coming out in the fall. Oh, good. Um, so that is that is in the works and and sort of already already sent in, and my dream really is um, <laughs> it's like asking someone who paints by numbers to become Monet. What my dream is, I can I, I've written everything that I've written so far that's been published is nonfiction. I would love to write the great American novel, and and I've tried. I have a I have a two hundred and fifty page spy thriller that I've written sitting on my desk. And uh, um, it's, it's called, I won't tell you the name because it's hopefully someday it will still happen, but yeah. my kids know about it. And um, my daughter called one night as I'm working on my spy thriller. And she said, dad, have you, have you seen uh, the Jack Ryan show on Netflix? Yeah. And I said, no, she said, watch it. And Tom Clancy from the grave stole my entire plot of the book that my spy thriller that I was writing. It's a, you know, they say you should write what you know. And I know, you know, biology and viruses and, and bioterrorism. <clears throat> Pardon me. So I was writing as writing a spy thriller set at the CDC where I've been and I know people and I've worked with. And I thought this is where I should center my, Clancy already did it. Tom Clancy already, and, and, and he, it came out years after he died. It was based upon his Jack Ryan character. So I kind of have to go back to the drawing board on that. But or, yes. Or do it anyway. Let me tell you a story. Um, so be inspired by my father. Uh, my father was a screenwriter in Hollywood. He had an agent, all these things. Um, long story short, we were raised in Iowa. He decided uh -huh. that wasn't the life to raise 11 children. And so we're, we lived in Iowa and Minnesota and all these things. But so he had his stroke and he had field, he had cut field cuts, um, you know, to somebody listening where you can't see here, you can't see here. You're pretty yeah. much kind yeah. of blind from your stroke, but boy, with, with everything he had happened to him, his memory was in perfect tack. He attacked, he was physical, you know, everything moved, everything worked. He just couldn't see very well. That was it. So my dad blind wrote a spy thriller um, and before, yeah. And before, bef so let him be an inspiration to you. Maybe uh, I'll send you a copy of it. It's called presidential prey okay. and uh, it is uh, edited. It's professional. We published my brother and I published it for him. So he could see his published work before he passed away. Beautiful. Oh, Elizabeth. Oh, I've got goosebumps. Oh, not, yeah. not not for the book, but for but for your dad being able to see it. Oh, uh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so it, it's it's an actual cool book. It's it, you know it's one of those things though. 
they're like, Dad? <laughs> you know, you're like, you were, the writing, some of it's filthy, some of it, you know, you're just like, yeah. wow, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So we had to kind of be like, we're going to ignore the <laughs> bits and pieces of this because it's foul. But, um, you know, it's it's a cool book. So I say go for it. That's wonderful. Thank you. I, I will go for it. And I, I'll tweak it and I won't discard the concept completely. I just have to I just have to change the virus and, and change the terrorists. And, you know, I'll yeah. yeah. And, and to, you know, to think he wrote that blind. I mean, really, he could he incredible. just it's just crazy. Cool. Yeah. So anyway, all right. So back to sorry, I, I I do that on this show. I just like share stories randomly. Sorry. In a little bit, but um, could you do us a favor and grab your book? And could you just for fun read something from here that's that you think that we should know, even okay. if you just turn to a page randomly or if you've got a favorite one? I I just would like to sit back and listen. Thank you. That's very sweet. I I I would love to do that. Um, it will be from the um, uh, page 232 <laughs> for those follow for those following in their in their script, uh, and it's uh, live like you're dying. Mm. To conclude, key number seven, which is grow, and my prescription for growth, I'm borrowing from a country hit that touches me deeply. Tim McGraw's "Live Like You Were Dying." Given a terminal diagnosis, what does a man in the song do? He loved more deeply, spoke more sweetly, became a better husband and friend, gave forgiveness, and then he leaves us his wish that we get the chance to live as he did, as if we are dying. It reminds me of a patient I met as a medical student many years ago who told me he had put off too much for the future, a future he would never have because of the terminal diagnosis he faced in his mid-50s. He had so many regrets. Yes, part of living like you're dying is a carpe diem approach to life, making the most of each day, appreciating the wonders and blessings all around, taking advantage of good health to do the things you'll wish you would have done should health fail you. But my idea of no regrets living is not just about carpe diem or smelling the roses. It's also about the way we treat people, the relationships we form, the legacy we hope to leave. If tomorrow was suddenly and unexpectedly the last day of your life, would you die owing apologies? Would there be people you didn't say, I love you to enough? Thank you. Great book. Thank, Thank you. You. You, Thank you. You are such a lovely soul, and, and I'm so grateful that you're here with us. Uh, to share in your wonderful book, No Regrets Living. I hope everybody um, that's listening uh, goes to Amazon and grabs a copy. It's also available at Barnes & Noble. I think you can get it right from hcibooks.com, I think. Um, and if, wherever books are sold, all of your books are there. And I hope you'll come back. I Please come back. And I hope you'll join us over on the new Best Ever You Kids we just launched. There's nothing on the website. <laughs> so, Sounds great, Elizabeth. You're a, you're, a, you're a gracious and kind host, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And to everyone listening, thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You show. We will take this interview and put it over. We'll take the audio and put it over on our podcast. We'll take the video and put it up on YouTube. We're going to blast this out everywhere so people see it on our network. And um, thank you again. Uh, we appreciate you being here. All right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for listening. We're so glad you tuned in. Be brave, be bold, be you. And remember to visit us at besteveryou.com.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.